Hello everyone, today my guest is Will Bates. Will's most recent work is scoring the Amazon original film Bliss, which is a sci-fi drama starring Owen Wilson and Salma Hayek, and it is an absolutely wild score in that it jumps around probably half a dozen genres, and it manages to do so pretty seamlessly. In addition to Bliss, Will has scored a ton of commercials, movies, and TV series. We get into a few of these during our conversation, as well as Will's pretty interesting background, in which he first started off as a gigging jazz musician, then a struggling indie rock artist across the U.S., before he moved into writing music for commercials, which then led him into writing for film, short film. You can find more information about Will on his website, which I'll post. And of course, you can also find more about me on social media at The Film Score or the website, thefilmscore.com. And I hate to say this is actually my second to last interview for a while. My next will come out, of course, in two weeks, after which there will be a bit of a hiatus. I might have a few episodes here and there talking about film music, but it will be a little while before there are more interviews. Hopefully not too long. Now, I hope you enjoy this interview. I highly recommend checking out the score and the film as well. Now, sit back and have a listen. So, Will, I'm, I'm so glad you're able to join me today. Very happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, of course. So, it seems like you've been uh, pretty busy despite the pandemic. I know with the Amazon film Bliss just coming out that you scored. So, that's pretty exciting stuff. Yeah, yeah, I was kind of fortunate that a few projects were halfway through. I mean, it's sort of good and bad, I guess. But um, yeah, the pandemic, I was able to kind of keep going when a lot of things were, were shutting down. So I'm very fortunate in that sense. Did the pandemic interfere with a lot of your actual recording of music? Or was a lot of that in the box? Or as I can see behind you, you've had a, a heck of a lot of synths and instruments already there at home. Yeah, well, between the studio and my studio in North Hollywood, I do have a lot of a lot of toys and a lot of stuff that I've collected over the years. And I found that a lot of the people that I collaborate with or have record on some of my projects tend to be not in the same city. For example, I use a strings guy called Lev Zerbin a lot. And we've got into this habit of like, I'll write something with MIDI and then like email him a PDF of the chart and then he'll kind of record in his apartment and send it back to me. So there's a few other musicians that I work that way with and I've been doing that for about a decade. So in some ways there are certain aspects of my process that haven't really been altered by COVID at all. And then of course there are other things that are just completely derailed like spotting sessions and mix stages and you know orchestral records and stuff like that. I think that composers generally are pretty adaptable and able to sort of make good of certain situations and yeah the remote recording thing was pretty was not that new to me put it that way yeah, i was gonna say it sounds like you're accidentally pandemic proofed yourself yeah maybe yeah totally but yeah i think that's that's just because of you know not being in the same city for that long i just the people that i've kind of grown up with are already all over the place so how have you developed that network of other artists composers musicians Is, has that just been kind of a product of working in music for so long? I think so, yeah. I mean, I, my background is a bit all over the place. I started out as a jazz musician, then I discovered techno and 
electronic music, released some records in England. And then I started an indie band that I was the lead singer of in New York. We did that for nearly a decade. And I guess like along the way, I've just been in bands, done kind of live performances, composed for various projects. And I think naturally, you know, after so many years in this game, you, you start to amass a, a family. And there are people that I have been doing stuff with for years. And I, I'm very lucky to still be able to work with a lot of them. And, you know, the more you work with people, the more you develop that shorthand. And, and I think that's really important to kind of have that, that sort of flexibility and that familiarity with people. I bet. Well, and especially if you're going through that many genres as well, doing that jazz, techno, I mean, indie rock even. Yeah, it's ridiculous. It's all over the place. So the best man of my wedding is this guy called Quentin Collins. And we shared a flat together when we were 19. He's a trumpet player. I was a sax player. We thought we were like Bird and Dizzy, you know. <laughs> and, um, he continued to be, he's now one of London's premier trumpet players. He's a total badass. And I obviously kind of took a bit of a different path but um we wrote some cues together for bliss he's featured on on that score and we've done a bunch of stuff i'll like find any excuse to fly him to la and just like have a a messy time in the studio and have some fun and make some music together so yeah it's always it's like it's really a, a blessing to be able to work in a field where you can just hang out with your mates you know and uh make a living from it <laughs> yeah i bet at, at least i'm jealous and i'm sure other people listening in will be too with that winding path to get to where you are now, was film and other media compositions something that was always in your mind, or did you just kind of stumble into it? I think that I film music was weirdly like the gateway for me to really fall in love with music in general. The story I always tell is when I was five or six years old, I sang the whole score of Star Wars to my parents. And then they went out and bought me a violin that I was terrible at, but like they, I tried to persevere with it for four or five years and then discovered the, the sax. But I, I think that relationship between music and film was kind of the thing that really birthed the love of music and the power that it has. And it, of course, at that age, I didn't really understand that at the time. But, you know, when I discovered that there was this guy called John Williams who was responsible for all of these pieces of music that I, that I loved so much, I think I was maybe seven or eight by the time I realized that it was just one dude. It was like, whoa, like, wh how is that possible? How can someone create all those melodies? And I just fell in love with this idea of, of film scoring. And then, you know, like the first record I bought was Ennio Morricone's The Good, The Bad and The Ugly. Mm. I just have always loved things that are kind of colorful and a bit weird. Then I discovered jazz and like I said, dance music and all of that stuff. So I feel like I've taken a lot of weird turns and been sort of distracted by, you know, like the Rinse, the band that I was in, desperately trying to get signed for 10 years and <laughs> banging our heads against walls and dodging success like ninjas for a decade. All of that stuff kind of fuels your background and is like, has made me a better musician, I think, but it definitely took me off the course a little bit. Having said that, the, the only way that I ever knew how to make a living, I've had one proper job that I got when I was 20. I, I was I worked at the Savoy Tailors Guild sell, selling suits. I got fired because I didn't have <laughs> fold clothes very well. But other than that, I've um, I've managed to kind of feed myself by, by scoring. And that's partly because I rather naively thought that scoring commercials would be a route into film scoring. So I started doing that in my early 20s and got quite good at it and was the in-house composer for a few different music houses and eventually went off and started my own. But, um, you know, that was another training ground for me, learning to write quickly and learning to write in tons of different genres and stuff. So 
music and film has just always been that natural pairing for me. It wasn't like a late discovery. It's always been there. So that is interesting that it's it's always been there for you. It just may have taken a while for you to land right into it. Yeah, I think I just didn't really, I didn't take the idea very seriously at first of like being, a, I didn't think it was possible. You know, I did a music degree, but it wasn't like a reading and writing kind of music degree. It was at the University of Westminster. It's called commercial music, weirdly. And it was like a bit of engineering, bit of business, bit of performance, bit of everything. But I think I always, I grew up in that pre- DAW world where we all thought that to be a film composer you needed to be like have a conservatoire education and that kind of thing. The school that I went to it was somewhat frowned upon to try to do music without being very academic and Mm. that's really changed lately. In my day it was like I was told to go out and get a proper job. My school told me not to pursue music. They said it was too risky. I remember my music teachers at, at my high school, were, they were not particularly encouraging and supportive of the idea of trying to do this for a living. And maybe rightly so, because it's risky and it's hard. And funnily enough, I ended up going to university to, to do a French degree because I thought that that would be like a better, more <laughs> academic. It's so stupid. I lasted a year because I was a, like a gigging jazz musician at the time and was like performing in clubs and bars and then trying to squeeze in a French education at the same time it just wasn't going to work so I left that and and did a music degree instead my father was an actor and he had that similar sort of thing where it was like oh don't don't do what I do go out and be a plumber be something useful don't (laughs) don't get into the arts it's too difficult I know Jeremy Renner I think was like living out of his car until the Hurt Locker became Right. big film and and yeah so it's it's weird you think of these lavish lifestyles and even for for film composers you see like the composer studio walkthroughs for someone like Hans Zimmer and it's like oh this is big money and then it's like well no this is that's the top yeah and it doesn't happen it doesn't happen straight away I don't really yeah. know his story but I'm sure he has a similar path where you know you start out just kind of scraping by and my dad did all right but he we still kind of grew up going into the doll queue every like six months mm-hmm. he'd be out of work and that would be like part of our background like queuing up with him to get his check <laughs> so but then you know he'd get a job in the west end and he'd be all right for three or four months and i think that as a parent you sort of sometimes don't want to like inflict that on your children maybe i'm a dad now as well and i'm like yeah i mean i'd be really proud of my kids if they got into this racket but at the same time it's really hard (laughs) it's just very it's unpredictable i guess that's it and if you've got the stomach for it then give it a crack but otherwise (laughs) get a proper job yeah (laughs) well good that'll that'll be the takeaway for any totally yeah yeah, any anyone in school who's thinking about being a composer no get a proper job yeah well (laughs) i say that with a pinch of salt oh i know so you said something um, a few minutes ago that caught my attention where you mentioned that you were interested in and got into scoring for commercials naively thinking that would be a gateway into film scoring. Right. And I don't know if I've really talked with anyone about scoring for commercials. So could you kind of, could you expand on that a little bit? Sure. The main thing for me was I thought like, oh, well, they're making, this director obviously is going to make a 
commercial and then he or she will go off and make a TV show or a movie and maybe they'll bring me along too. And, you know, when I was writing as a composer in, in music houses, that's kind of how I thought I would make my connections. But in the end, that's sort of not really how it worked out. And I actually started my own company so that I could kind of create an environment where there would be that level of cross-pollination. And it's taken me a long time to develop the business to do that, but it wasn't a natural progression. But yeah, like scoring ads is kind of, you know, I think I was straight out of college. I worked at a company called B5 Atomic for a marvelous man called Heinhoven, who was living in England at the time. I did like a Del Monte commercial and like all sorts of stuff. You'd get a brief in the morning and it would be most of the time they'd need it need it the following day or that afternoon. I mean, it was so crazy. And at first I was just like, that's impossible. But after a while of doing that all the time, you just kind of get used to it. I then moved to New York and worked at another company called Amber. And I was there for seven years. And, you know, I had a studio in their building and, and it was a really great training ground. It can be a real grind. And I think it can be, I think it's one of those things that you've got to sort of just do a little bit of if you're trying to get into scoring movies because it, it starts to commodify the process a bit, like music as a commodity. It's not it's not a completely natural thing to write that quickly and that extensively. Sometimes they want five versions of a 30-second spot. So yeah, I, I started Fall on Your Sword as a way to sort of encourage that idea that maybe we could do a little bit of everything. And when I was at the at the other place, I would do all the ads during the day. And then at night when my boss wasn't around, I would quickly do my little short film or like my tiny little indie movie that had no money on it or like a friend's thing and, <laughs> and hope that eventually something good would happen. And sure enough, one of them ended up at Sundance. And that was kind of the beginning of my film career. And it, it's worked out really well. And that's kind of now, I don't really do the ads anymore, but we still, we have a little team of composers who take care of the commercials obviously I'm working on movies and tv and games more these days so I don't really have that much time although I I get wheeled out of retirement every now and again to do the odd spot but yeah I it's a great education I think it's a bit of a different skill set though to scoring something that's long form you know mm -hmm. like understanding a character and a narrative and a larger story it's it's not really the same bag of chips as scoring a 60 second commercial right you don't have a big thematic development over a 30 second spot yeah but it, it's a good way to sharpen your tools because you know even in television there's still a need to to write relatively quickly we get a little bit longer than on ads but there's definitely that fast turnaround that's required you can't kind of sit around waiting for lightning to strike you got to kind of get on with the job so i think that ads helped me to learn that skill as well so with that constant crunch and ad work did you ever did you have any times where it got too much or you you had to get something done by the next day and the next day rolls around and you're empty-handed or you have something that you know isn't going to work or isn't quite right? Um, I feel like it just, you always get it done somehow. <laughs> I don't know. It's ridiculous. The brutal reality as well of that world is that you got to kind of accept that 80% of what you write isn't going to go. It's mm -hmm. not going to air. And I think in the end, for me, as a creative, artistic person, that was the thing that kind of killed it for me. I couldn't keep dealing with the idea that like that amount of rejection, you know what I mean? Like, God, am I really going to, am I going to work on this thing all night knowing that it's just kind of a numbers game in the end, you know, like, you know, that there's 10 tracks coming from this company. There's probably 10 tracks coming from three other companies. There's like a one in 40 chance, let's say, you know what I mean? So I, yeah. I think that was kind of like, Ooh, I don't want to, 
you start to kind of maybe not care as much. And that's when I, I decided that I really needed to stop doing it because you want to always make your best work. But yeah, I think, you know, you just somehow always get stuff done. But because of that, like 80-20 ratio, I have a vast library of stuff. <laughs> and that was kind of why we started Fall on Your Sword as well, because like, we were sitting on this like library of, of work of mine that was like the, a way to begin the business. So yeah, that's yeah, that's another part of it is that rejection <laughs> that I I don't think any of us get used to. And obviously with film scoring there is always the possibility of rejection. Sometimes you get part way on and it doesn't work, but that seems like it's more so a creative difference versus that's just right. having a, a 2% chance of someone wanting your stuff. Yeah, totally. I mean, there's something inherently more collaborative, you know, let's say you've got the job, you're working on the show or the movie, but you're finding the sound of something together with the director or producers. I think that that's, it's so much more healthy. And that's what I always wanted was to be able to have that kind of collaborative feeling when you're when you're making the music for this picture and with commercials there's none of that it's like no or yes and then maybe you can kind of get into like a revision process but there's never that sort of feeling of exploring that's mm. more creative there's just less time I think that's all it is really interesting and so then obviously you mentioned during that period you were moonlighting doing short films indie films and that's right and obviously it's it's skill-based, but also kind of a, a luck of the draw that one of them happened to get a lot of attention kickstart things. That's right. Yeah, I did a movie with um, a director called Rai Russo Young. We did a movie called You Won't Miss Me together, which is her first feature. And yeah, it went to Sundance. And it, honestly, things just kind of grew from there. It's amazing that you can kind of pinpoint it to one thing it also was like my first real experience scoring a feature and it was kind of like oh I, I like this <laughs> this is a bit more like it so yeah that you know led to I think the following year I had two movies at Sundance the following year three or four it just kind of every year that mm -hmm. I went through a phase of about five or six years where I just had a lot of those like smaller budget Sundance movies and it was it was great and to be introduced to that community just sort of changed everything for me really some of this answer is going to be obvious of like being at a bigger stage is going to change things but what helped change things i mean was it just like your name and you being exposed to a, a greater market or kind of having that more commercial critical success with things to get you out there i think it's just it's almost like a validation of mm. like I think I struggled to say that I was a composer before I started having movies at Sundance. You know what I mean? Like, what do you do for a living? I'm a, uh, I'm kind of a composer. I'm kind of in a band. You know, there's a bit of that going on for a long time for me. But I think once I had a couple of Sundance films, it was like, I'm a, I'm a composer. I'm a film composer. And I got an agent out of Sundance and it validated that trajectory for me. And it also kind of, let's be honest, I think it kind of closed the door finally for me, like sleeping in the van and driving around <laughs> America with my little band. You know, it was like, okay, we've had a good crack. Now I'm going to do this for a while. So it made me take it a bit more seriously. It took a lot longer than it probably should have. <laughs> and feel free not to answer because this might date you a little bit. But I mean, how how long did it really take for you to go from working on commercials or maybe working from your first couple short films to feeling comfortable at Sundance, landing that agent, feeling like, all right, I'm a film composer? Um, That's a great question. God. Let's see. I, I guess I moved to New York in 2002 and I moved to L.A. in 2015. 
And I think probably 2008 was maybe like the first time I was at Sundance. So yeah, like six years. There was like six or seven years of grinding away in New York. That was really the time when I was really just trying. It probably took about that long. From there to start, it kind of all happened at once. Me becoming a film composer and me starting Fall On Your Sword as a as a company. It was all part of the same decision, I guess, to kind of realign everything, not be a, like a staff writer at a, at a music house, just try and do something a bit different. It was around that time or maybe a little long, a little while afterward that you, I think, first collaborated with Mike Cahill. That's right. Who yeah. directed Bliss. Mm-hmm. And before we, before we really get into that relationship and into Bliss, I was curious, I think in some of those earlier scores, you know, at least on Wikipedia and Spotify and stuff, Fall in Your Swords listed as the composer rather right. than you. Yeah. Was, was there anything... <laughs> conscious to that or there there was very much so so i i almost feel like we kind of jumped the gun in terms of it it was like a bit too early in the film scoring world to kind of try this but you know fall on your sword initially was a band kind of like a video art project i had quite a lot of success with this (laughs) this william shatner video that was on youtube and we found ourselves i i had to kind of form a band to play at these like sci-fi conventions and stuff like that because of the success of this video that went viral and then that went on for a couple of years and it just made sense to kind of just brand everything the same i thought like oh well what if i score movies We've got the band and we've got the company and we'll just all do it as one thing. And that was a very conscious decision Mm. and I think worked for the first couple of years. And then eventually I realized that I wanted to kind of be separated from it somehow. And like not everyone loved the idea. Like people were a bit confused by were they hiring a band to score their movie or was it just one person or like what was going on there? And it was just, I found myself having to explain it to too many people. So eventually, I think maybe We Steal Secrets, I did the, I scored that movie under my own name, but then I released the album as Fall On Your Sword. It was like the last effort of trying to sort of keep it as one thing. And eventually it just made sense to kind of separate it we have like real estate like fall on your sword the studios is also like an audio post-production facility you know in north hollywood so it's easier now to kind of get your head around it it's like a place and like a sort of an art collective and we make art pieces and stuff like that too but at the time when i was kind of trying to get momentum for my own career and for the company it was like i'm doing all this stuff let's just make it all the same and see what happens and and i think good things came from it and also it baffled a few people too (laughs) um but yeah that's that i don't know if that's baffled you probably (laughs) i wouldn't i wouldn't say it i think there's some more modern parallels like with remote control productions yeah on zimmer's group there's that's right it's not exactly the same but i think there's a lot of similarity there where there are composers that have come out of it and i think if they're working on something that group is whether in the forefront or kind of behind the scenes is also involved in some ways. So it makes sense. Even if it didn't completely work out the way you kind of intended, I don't know. I like when people try to do something a little different because... Why not? If everyone did the same thing, the world would be really boring. Yeah. I mean, like I said, I think it, it worked to an extent. I think ultimately the inherent difference between like Fall on Your Sword and, say, Remote Control is that we didn't begin as a facility mm. with, a, with a strict 
path the way that Hans did. One of the first things we did was open for LCD sound system, for example. We had a record on DFA. You know, that you can't say that about remote control. So it's sort of like right there, that's weird and like yeah. confusing to people as well. So like, so is it a place that I can go to or are you going to play at my wedding? Like, what is it? <laughs> <laughs> so I, I think that the mistake was maybe trying to umbrella it too much i went from one extreme to the other you know mm. like it would have been better to for it to be the way it is now which is that foys is kind of the the facility my team of composers that do the commercials and the weird art projects that we do and that's that's kind of where it ends and everything else is is under my own name it just makes more sense i think like what are some of the art projects is it kind of sound for installations it's kind of both actually we we build the installation so mm. it, we did a series of shows called the spring break art show which is in new york city it's uh at the same time as the armory which is like a, a big art week in in new york it's sort of new york's version of basel and we uh did these shows during the armory at, at spring break and the first one we did was in 2012 and it was a apocalypse themed art show and we built a piano that when you hit keys on the piano there's a projection of different images from different movies of the Statue of Liberty being destroyed in different <laughs> films and then when you don't hit any keys there's a dude dressed as the Statue of Liberty reciting the death speech from Blade Runner but we went on from there and we did a, a thing called the private drive-in which is a we built this out of an old VW bug you sit inside the car and there's like images of a drive-in projected onto the gallery wall and you're sitting inside the car and people are sort of almost making out but when you hold the horn down the seats vibrate and people start making out and there's music that's like quadraphonic and every piece has a like a musical element to it but they're ultimately all art installations and at first we just did them for fun for me as a as an artist it sort of replace the need to go on stage for some reason like it, it scratched the same itch if that makes sense and it's me and my wife and another guy called Kenny Heitmuller it's kind of the three of us go and build these things together and that was the first couple and then because of our relationships with brands and stuff we found ourselves building stuff for for brands which is awesome so we did like a this thing called the Jose Cueva cell which is this giant sort of carousel made out of bottles with a shop vac blowing air over the bottles and the whole thing spins mm. around and plays old lang syne it was when we made the commercial for them for new years and we built this giant thing for siemens which is like a organ that plays different images of wind energy being collected it sort of turned into its own little corner of the company and we uh we have a facility that's big enough to build stuff like that. That is wild. That is not at all what I was expecting. But... No, I know. I mean, when you walk into Foy's now, like the, the most recent piece we made is um, a giant, it's like 10 kiosks, kind of look like large weighing machines. They have screens on each of them. And when you stand on one of them, it, there's like all this jungle footage that's kind of cut together and it'll play like the bass part. And then if someone stands on the one next to it it plays like the drums and if, if you're standing on all of them it plays this sort of afrobeat mm. tune that we composed there's just like weird stuff in our studio i love it it really makes me wish everything was opened up we used to have great parties you know the last <laughs> thing i think it was yeah end of february was like the last time i was like worried that people might have got sick at our last party but nobody did so it was fine but yeah we have we have good parties at our place, so you'll get an invite to the next oh, one. Oh, good. Let me know when and I'll book my tickets. <laughs> <laughs>
Definitely. We've we've kind of been going through almost your your history and taking all these tangents. So now we get to today or a couple months ago with Bliss comes out. It's I think that was the third film that you scored from my KO. That's right. Yeah. And I've got to say, I thought it was like a more just sci-fi film. Mm-hmm. And so watching it, I was totally unprepared for all of the different genre mashes and pseudo genres thrown in. Right. And and yeah, it's, yeah it, it is kind of a hard layered. film to pigeonhole. Oh yeah, absolutely. I think because of that, because there's, I mean, there's a, a romance drama element, a sci-fi element, even like crime aspects overlaid throughout. There's just so much that's going on. How did you sit down and figure out what sound that film's going to have? God, you know, I... This one was... So, it's funny. Me and Mike have um, done three movies together now, but there was seven years between Eye Origins and Bliss. In that time, we did four TV shows together. He gave me my first TV show, actually. I have a lot to thank Mike for. He did the pilot for a show called The Magicians that ended up running for five seasons. And then we did The Path, and then we did Rise, and we did another show called Night Flyers. So in that time, in that seven years, we've done tons of work together, and we've developed a real trust and shorthand with one another. And one of the things with Mike is that he loves to get music in there early and... I think maybe we were doing Night Flyers. So it would have been like 2018, or maybe even 17. And he gave me the script for Bliss. So Bliss has been kind of like kicking around for, for years, literally. And I think when I read it, we spoke like the next day and we started talking about music then ridiculously early. But generally, like that's one of the lovely things with him is that we'll have a conversation and then I'll write some sketches and then maybe he'll be on set. And by the time he's on set, we've even got a couple of themes going on. And I remember him telling me that he was driving to the the first day of shooting on, on the path and he didn't know the cast very well at that point. And they're all in the van together. And he was like, right, everyone shut up, listen to this. And he like played what my sketch that ended up becoming the main titles for the show. And they were kind of like driving to war, you know, driving to their first day of shooting um i love that it's so lovely and rare for a composer to be kind of involved in that process and he'll he'll send me dailies and i've got access and i can see everything that they're that they're doing and that was very much the case with bliss that we started talking about tone super early and back then i think right at the beginning he was imagining it being more almost absurdist really wild like crazy horns we talked a lot about a movie called underground do you know that film so It's from the former Yugoslavia. It's about these people that are, they live underground during the, the Second World War, I think it is. And they, they come back up and they don't realize that like 30 years has gone by and there's another war and it's the Yugoslavian war. It's kind of like a lot of crazy instrumentation and wild like Romanian party music is what we talked about. But as time goes on and, and when they actually started to shoot, it seemed to make more sense that it needed to be more emotional and kind of reined in, I guess. And by the time he was editing I think maybe I'd done 10 or 15 sketches and and we'd already kind of zeroed in on melody and theme and that kind of stuff it sort of made more sense that melody was going to be a big tool more so than some of the other projects that we've done together where we use melody to sort of change context you know like that that will be the thread that'll be the thing that kind of connects you to these characters and although they're in all these different scenarios changing the instrumentation of this melody will be the thing that kind of unites it that was a a relatively late 
decision to do that. But I mean, I say that, but I think then we still were in post for probably another year because of COVID. It was a very long process, this one. He finished shooting in 2019 and then we were kind of in post. And then I squeezed in an orchestral session in January of 2020. And Mike attended, it was in New York City. It's actually the first time that I've ever worked with an orchestra, which is nuts. Like after all these years, I've managed to get <laughs> away with not not doing it. When I'm using strings, it always tends to be like quintets, quartets, small crews, soloists. And it was so lovely for me to finally call up a lot of these collaborators and be like, all right, we're finally, we're going to do it together this time. We're going to be in a room. And I called up the the cellist from Another Earth and I Origins, who's now the musical director of the Orlando Philharmonic. And he wow. decided he was going to be the conductor. And it was great. So we, we were able to kind of squeeze that in just before lockdown happened. And then it like derailed the entire Amazon release plan, which in the end, I think was probably fine because Mike then... Mike lives in Croatia now and he took the edit back to Croatia and just kind of tinkered with the cut for six months and I carried on kind of tinkering with my score and then here we are. But um, finding the tone of that movie was really, really hard, really difficult. It was, as you said, it's like layered and complicated and melody was, was the key to unlocking it, I think. I don't remember when the film came, but I think the score released sometime in early February because I had, I listened to it maybe the day it came out or that weekend or something and... My first listen, it's just jumping around genre so much. Right. You know, it's a bit more of a romantic, not quite elegant, but I think you know what I'm, what I'm saying, like near the opening cues. And then it gets into a more headier sci-fi feeling. And then later on with the thought visualizer and the Hotel Pleiades, it's like a much more loungy, jazzy sound. And I'm yeah. listening to this yeah. in, in like the course of under an hour. I'm like, how does all this work? Right. And so I, I listened to it <laughs> once or twice. It yeah, and, and then I saw it in context. And then I, I listened to it again earlier. And I was like, oh, you know what? It Now it feels like there's much more of a connecting line throughout everything and being able to kind of visualize as things go. But mm -hmm. yeah, it was, it was a really strange first experience with the score. Good. I like that. I like strange. <laughs> you know, I love soundtrack albums. And I, like I said, that was the first record I bought. And I, I still kind of love buying and listening to soundtrack albums. But I do sometimes just wish that they took you on a journey a little bit more rather than kind of being that sort of background thing. Mm -hmm. I tend to try and make them almost deliberately U-turny, you know, just to kind of have it not be the background dinner jazz thing that maybe some scores end up being. This particular score is so all over the place. And, you know, that because of the fact that there are these two defined worlds, you know, and one of them, almost the purpose of it is to fill you with this feeling of chaos and the, the feeling that Greg is going through where he's just like, is this real? What's going on? And like, you know, I, I think Mike's intention is always to make the viewer decide which is real and, and give validity to both worlds as much as possible. And that was a, a really clear mandate. And one of the things with with the ugly world, as he likes to call it, is to just kind of give it this kind of visceral energy, this sort of unexpected jolt. And one of the ways that I wanted to do that was with with live performance. And of course, there's the orchestra, but I also wanted there to be like this wildness to it, a kind of crazy, frenetic energy that comes from the drums in the end. There's a wonderful drummer called Spencer Cohen, who's featured on a lot of those cues. And he's a, a jazz drummer, but he's kind of doing really 
bonkers shit all the way through it. And it's also a little insight into where the score was right at the beginning of the process. Like I said, it was kind of really, really wild at one point. And then we sort of took a sledgehammer to a lot of the cues in the same way that Mike took a sledgehammer to the edit and like carried on kind of changing the order of, of things. But that initial idea of like wild virtuosity, I think, is 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 still in there. I, I was really, that was important to me to like really have this like blah, crazy feeling. That makes a lot more sense now as to, like you just said, where that the initial thought process was with you know what what this these sound could potentially be because wanted to create an chaotic crazy world like yeah that stylistically really makes a lot of sense yeah and it's still about the journey you know it mm -hmm. should be like i said I, I i want it to feel like the rabbit hole come on this like where are we going next what's happening now this is crazy <laughs> oh now i get it you know that kind of feeling that's that's where i wanted it to live I appreciate that. And it's it's actually interesting. I was having a conversation online with a few people about how soundtrack release albums not necessarily should be, but how different fans want them to be. I think I'd fall more into this bucket, like find it much more interesting to have something that's more curated and that takes you on its own journey. And maybe it's one that mirrors the film or one that differs slightly just based on how it is musically. So after digesting the score for a while, and especially in the context of the film, it definitely takes you on a journey like that. And one that, like you said, it's it's just this labyrinthine rabbit hole and you have no idea where you're going or how you're going to get there until you land at the end. Right. Yeah. And I, I hope that there are still beats where you you connect, you know, like mm -hmm. you're connecting with them and, and their character. But at least at first, I try to be chronological and then inevitably... <laughs> it always ends up taking a departure. And, you know, I, it's funny, like, talking of Mike, like, the first, for Another Earth, like, that one, that one, in the end, was more like a remix album. Like, and then I, I Origins was more kind of conventional. And then I feel like this one is somewhere in the middle where I, you don't always want the cues to appear exactly as they appear in the movie. It just kind of sometimes doesn't make sense musically. Or there's like a, an opportunity to embellish something that you didn't get the opportunity to do. There's a couple of cues even on the album that aren't actually in the movie, for example. Mm. It's like, oh, I can, I can use that thing that we were going to use, but the scene got cut. So that's always been it's such a lovely process for a composer to have that experience at the end, as long as there's time, because these things tend to get very rushed and just sort of shoehorned in at the last minute. Fortunately, with this one, there was a bit of time to give it some thought. And like, it's a nice way to sort of kiss goodbye to the process, you know, like it's a nice sorbet <laughs> at the end of it all. It's cool. Yeah, that is that is really cool, and it's and like and I guess accidentally, but this is like the opposite scenario that I compared to what I hear from basically every other composer and every other project where you had a lot of time, at least maybe on the back end of things. Mm -hmm. But did you review that having that much time, having six months to kind of tinker with things, would actually like could potentially be detrimental? Maybe, but I don't think it was ever really. It was always just around the corner. It's very COVID-like, you know what I mean? Like, we were never told, you're going to be locked down for a year. We were told, like, yeah, in a couple of weeks, you're going to be out of this. And that was kind of what was happening with this as well. Tinkering is maybe not the best term. It was more like, that scene's not working. Let's do something to fix it. And then we're going to, the mix is now going to be on this date. Actually, now it's been pushed again. Let's fix that scene. You know, it was kind of like these sort of constant little tasks that Mike and I were assigning ourselves. And it was really like just the two of us, they kind of led us to it, which is interesting. And 
you know, the other thing that was really great that came entirely because of COVID was the song that's the first track on the album. That started off as this idea where he wanted there to be this epilogue. And in actual fact, the epilogue is the the real reason things kind of got massively delayed because Amazon were like, do you want to do anything else? And he was like, yeah, I want to shoot an epilogue. And they're like, okay, great, shoot it. And that was in February. And then they're like, wow. stop, you can't do it now. You got to wait. So we waited and we waited. Meanwhile, we're doing other things. And then eventually he shot it in August. So when we were talking about the epilogue, he's like, well, why don't we do a kind of an acapella vocal version of the love theme? And I was like, that's great. I got this dear friend in London called Sky Edwards from Mochiba. I'd love to work with her again. So I called her up and asked if she would just sing that thing. And then Mike heard it and was like, that's great. Why don't we do a song that kind of goes into the end titles? And so I, I wrote some words knowing that she would sing it. And then he heard that and was like, this is great. Let's put that in the roller skating queue. And I, I can't remember what the song was in the edit, but they got rid of that song and he recut the whole scene with, with my song in it. And then it was too short. So I had to write another verse and, and then Sky sang that. But it was kind of like this very natural, organic, like we're not in a hurry. Let's just experiment with this thing. And it was just, again, you know, an excuse for me to work with an old mate, which is awesome. She's so good. She's such a badass. I just adore Sky. And it was, yeah, I think the song came out great. And then they wanted to make a music video out of it, which is fun so she did that with us and, and then at some point you had the chance to do like a, a remix or different version that's the, yeah you know, the, the foy's version that's right the foy's version yeah which again i haven't done something it's like the first remix i've done in ages and it was like whoa i'll just remix my own song why not yeah that was like a spur of the moment decision just for the just for the record just for fun it was a nice way as, as well you know the song is kind of based on the love theme it's melodically got some of the same dna so you know it was helpful for there to be another thing that unifies things a mm. bit more just to stop it from being quite so tangential it is a nice hearing when there's actually more time to work on things and and yeah the, the results definitely show i think it's it's a song that because quite often when you hear a a vocal track on a especially like on a, on a soundtrack release quite often it's really jarring like it'll be a a pop single that's related to it maybe right but yeah then it, it feels like it has nothing to do with the rest of the score and frankly when i first put the album on that's kind of what i was expecting so it was quite a relief to actually be like oh no this fits with everything else like it actually makes sense to be here right on that's great yeah and i think that mike had that he just always struggled with that scene i think for mm. for that exact reason like every time the song no matter what song he tried it was just like oh Oh, now it's kind of working, but at first you're just like, ooh, it's just a little butt clenchy or something. But for some reason, <laughs> as soon as he and I, it was never intended to be the song for that scene, but he did it and it and he recut a few things and it, suddenly it just landed for him in a better way than it ever had. So so we kept it having this amount of time. Like he and I, we've done now. It's kind of across the gambit. We've had tons of time. We've had zero time. You know, like. Normally with television, he and I try to sort of engineer the the situation so that we can have that kind of collaborative moment. But in TV, honestly, it's like four days. Like we'll get, he'll get four days of, in the edit after he's done shooting to, to do the director's cut and then he's off. That's why I'm, I'm normally writing while he's shooting just so that we have that back and forth moment. And with Bliss, it was just the other extreme. It was, it was so great to be able to have these like lovely long conversations and these sort of theoreticized discussions about theme and structure and instrumentation and it was really great 
I love that, and I, especially with how, and not everyone realizes, but how collaborative the process is between a composer and a director to actually make sure that everyone's on the same page and that everything is really married so that it all fits. Having mm-hmm. that extra time, I mean, it's crucial, so it's... Yeah, accidentally, accidentally months and months. Yeah, no, it's great. Before I let you go, I did want to ask if you have anything else that you're working on now that we can kind of expect in the next couple months or the next year yeah so i have a there's a movie called edge of the world which was another thing that i was working on during lockdown gosh i i think i started working on that one in november of 2019 but this is a it's my first period movie starring jonathan reese myers as a raja james brooke who went to borneo in the 19th century and accidentally became the raja of sarawak and then his nephew ended up leading the the nation until the second world war it's a really fascinating story it was kind of the the story that then led to james conrad and heart of darkness and apocalypse now and stuff it's very kind of about that experience of uh the Kurtz kind of leader. That one is coming out, I think, in the US, I think it's coming out June 4th. Really different score. I ended up learning to play an instrument called the Sarpe, which is a sort of a Sarawak lute. Um, there's a guy out there who built one for me and sent it out here. And I found another one on Etsy, actually. But I feel like I've sort of made a career out of picking up instruments and figuring out how to kind of get something out of it. So that was an experience. And then using some fantastic musicians on that one. That's a super fun project. And then I have a video game that I'm just finishing up now, um, which is only my second video game. I did a Rainbow Six game a couple of years ago, and this is also with Ubisoft different Mm -hmm. franchise yeah that's fun i'm not a gamer at all but um (laughs) (laughs) it's been um it's been insightful to get into that world a bit more yeah lots of fun things on the horizon so very cool yeah yeah so i'm I'm looking forward to those i i used to be a big gamer not really anymore but i don't know one of of these days i want to actually like learn about video game music because it seems in my head it seems like so different than film music because obviously film is a set linear narrative yeah yeah it's interesting that was always like the the part of it that I was most nervous about like oh does everything have to loop and how do I but honestly like Ubisoft are amazing they're very their music department is just fantastic Mm. and they're super smart and really brilliant at kind of taking cues and sort of have like figuring out what stems would go where and I just kind of score it like it's a movie and then they, <laughs> they just uh, there's just a lot of music it's like an hour of music and you do have to have that understanding that they're probably going to take elements from other cues and make sure that they work together so but yeah it's fun it's a fun process very cool it will uh we'll keep your our eyes and ears open for those to release Right on. Well, thank you for having me. Yeah, of course. And I'm, I'm so glad you're able to join me. It's been a pleasure. It's great to chat. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, you have a great rest of your weekend. And, and uh, I'll be looking forward to the following your sword party invite. Yeah, there you go. You'll get your invite <laughs> as soon as you've had your vaccine. <laughs> All right. Take care.